From the beginning, it, we, we studied the book of Acts early on, and we saw in the book of Acts that the, the church grew as God's people evangelized, were witnesses to, to Jesus and telling everyone they could, could meet about the, the gospel and the good news and inviting them to put their faith and trust in Christ. And then when those who trusted Christ were baptized, discipling them, helping them grow up into maturity in Christ. And then when there's a cluster of believers gathering them together in church plants and then seeking to train up leaders to lead those churches. And from the beginning, that has been our aim. And as Steve prayed for some of those who have gone out, we just continue to pray that God would do that in our dear friends who we sent out last week, Shalom Community Church and, and Diodne and, and the Larsons and the Walbergs and all these others. And we pray that God would continue to do that uh, as we look ahead for our 10th year at Jubilee. All of it by His grace and for His glory. All of it, uh, He's doing it. He is, he is faithful. In all of that, Jubilee, let me just invite you to pray that the Lord would continue to sustain our budget as we continue to send people out. Our desire is that we would be able to give and support every one of these folks that goes out. And so our budget has been growing, and part of that is due in part to different church plants we're supporting, which we are happy to do. But just pray with us. We don't talk about our budget all that much here, but pray with us that God would continue to meet our budget. For nine years, God's met every need we've had, but we, we uh, don't take that for granted. We don't assume on the generosity of God's people or the faithfulness of God. We uh, say, thankful, say thank you to Him for His faithfulness and ask that you would join us in praying that God would continue to provide for our needs there. As a brother uh, Lewis mentioned, we are in Psalm 10 this morning. Next week for our anniversary, we'll do something different. We'll be in Psalm 11, and then we will begin our fall series. But today we are in Psalm 10. As we saw last week, Psalm 9 and 10 go together. They are, in some readings of the Bible, one long psalm. In our Bible, they are split up into two psalms, but clearly they fit together as a matched pair, Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. And Psalm 10 has much for us that I'm eager for us to see. I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word as we read Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why? Do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. 
He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked an evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find none. Yahweh is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. May God bless the reading of His holy and inerrant Word. You may be seated. Father, we pray that You would draw near in these minutes now. I am weak. We are weak. You are strong. Please show Yourself strong through Your Word. We ask for Your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is so interesting in the book of Psalms how many different kind of psalms and songs there are. As we said last week, Psalms is a favorite book for so many because it captures so many different emotions. Some high and lofty, some joyous and filled with praise, some questioning and really sad. And so they are loved because we love all kinds of different songs. Someday you're tapping your foot to a happy tune, and other days you have a sad song on and you don't know why. Do any of you have a favorite sad song? You ever turn on that sad song? You're all alone. I remember as a preteen, I had a favorite sad song for some reason reason I can't remember. Andrew McCorse's favorite band, Chicago, sang a song, Look Away. Andrew, is that your favorite song, favorite band? Thank you. That is very kind, even though I know for sure it, it's not, because it's a tremendously cheesy group. They had a song, Look Away. Not sure why as a preteen I loved a, a breakup song, but I think it was the, the timeless lyrics but if you see me walking by and the tears are in my eye, look away, baby, look away. <laughs> don't look at me. I don't want you to see me this way. 
powerful. <laughs> What's funny is that many of you have similar sappy songs that you have loved for various and interesting reasons. And yet, as we love songs that don't have all that much weight to them, these songs, each one of them, though they express a great range of emotion, are indeed timeless. Where Psalm 9 struck a tone of confidence, a tone of victory, Psalm 10 is something of a sad song, something of a lament, something of a, a question over and over. God, why do these wicked prosper? Why do they have their own way? And it begins with a couple of hard questions that draw us right into its emotion. And it's been given by our God to meet us in our highs and our lows. This is a psalm for the person who is asking, why does God allow hard times? Why does the Lord not allow us to see what He is doing? What is God up to in poor health that doesn't get better? What is our Father up to in strained family relationships that are so painful? What is He doing in the questions that are hard in life that don't seem to have any answers? We wonder and we ask, and we need the Word of God. Each of us can produce our own unique why list. Why, God, did you do this? God, why did you not do that? Each is aware in our own lives and the lives of others of unsatisfied answers that are left. And this, friends, is a song for you to sing in those days, a psalm given by God that guides us in asking questions like this. I'm going to break this psalm down into a simple outline, three parts. In verse 1 through 11, we want to consider a question in 12 through 15. We want to consider a call in 16 through 18. We want to consider the psalmist's confidence. Now, you might ask, each week, normally we have an outline. Why? why? Why outlines? Why do we do that? Why is that important? It's just one way of trying to organize the thoughts of, of in this case, a, an 18-verse psalm, and we're trying to put it in some order in our heads and put it in some order that as you give further reflection through the week might help you to order your thoughts and meditate on it. Because the sermon and the, the sermon text is not just for the minutes we have here but I hope that it provides fodder for your reflection, your meditation, that it would soak into your heart and mind throughout the week. We begin with a question, really a couple of questions here in verse 1. Look at them with me. Why, O Lord? Remember, this is the name of the Lord here. This is not a generic name of God. This is the name Yahweh here. Why, O Yahweh? So here he's using the, the personal name of God, and yet he's asking, why, oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? 
As Pastor Lou mentioned, this is in contrast to Psalm 9 where we, we heard confidence. Those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And now the psalmist is asking a question, why do you stand, Lord, far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's about to unpack pain and injustice and he's asking God this question. It's a question like the way Psalm 13 begins, how long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? We have to stop and ask, is it okay to question God in this way? Is this okay to question God? And the answer is the Word of God is teaching us that yes, indeed, it is okay to question God. And we must question Him rightly. There is a right way to question God and there is a wrong way to question God. You see, there is a, a simplified version of Christianity that doesn't want to even ask the question, that doesn't want to give space to ask God questions, to, to, to wrestle with God, as it were. Instead, just slap, slap a little cliche, a little Bible verse. God's working everything together for good. That's it. Just smile and keep going. And yet, that's not what the Bible does. God's Word grabs us and takes us into emotion. It meets the one who is feeling forsaken. It meets the one who is feeling cut off. And even here, we hear echoes of our Savior. For it was He who used one of these psalms on the cross, the 22nd Psalm, when He recited in His agony, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? Why, Jubilee, would the loved Son of God pray this way? Why would the eternal Jesus ask this? Why would he feel this? Because he left his home. And instead he became forsaken. He left all that was strong and he entered into our weakness. He left his comfort to become acquainted with our suffering and our pain. And so Jesus himself became acquainted with how we feel when we asked these kind of questions. So what kind of questioning is the psalmist doing? And what does it teach us relating to God? It teaches us that we come to God tethered to reality. We don't fake it with God. We don't need to put on a happy face with God. We bring Him our emotions. Emotions are a gift from our Father. And yet as we bring our emotions to God, we look to God, not cursing Him, not rejecting Him, not dishonoring Him, but wrestling, knowing, believing that He is good, He's with us, He's for us. And yet as we feel and we struggle, we have questions of why he feels 
so far away. And this is what is so helpful about this psalm and psalms like this. It teaches us that questions are normal, but at their root is faith, believing that God is our Father, believing that God is good, believing that God loves us even when life is painful and hard. These are not questions of accusations. These are not questions of unbelief. Because we know in God's Word that Satan asks questions, but his questions are meant to undermine, meant to belittle, meant to call into question God's goodness. Did God really say? The believer asks, why is this so hard? Why, God, do you seem far off? Satan asks, should you really trust God? These are different kinds of questions that we must be able to distinguish for these questions to make sense. In Psalm 9, we heard much of God and a little bit about the wicked. Now in Psalm 10, as we continue, we're going to see much more of a focus on the wicked and its reference to God. God will play a lesser role in these early verses. We continue verse 2, in arrogance, the wicked... This is this one that's, that's going to be listed throughout these verses as all these marks. Let's see them. In the, wick, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes, the schemes of the wicked that they have devised. Verse 3, for the wicked boasts of the desire of his soul. All of these are marks of the wicked. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Now we begin to see something else about the wicked here in relation to God. Cursing God, renouncing the Lord. Not just renouncing the Lord generally, but renouncing the Lord specifically, the covenant-keeping God, renouncing Yahweh. That is, turning back on one you had followed. You don't renounce one you've never known. You renounce one you have known and turned back from in the pride of his face. Verse 4, the wicked does not seek him. That is, does not seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. You see, what's being described here is not just an atheism that out and out rejects God. What is being described here is a practical atheism that has given some lip service, some acknowledgement of God, but then has renounced him, has turned, and lives life as though he doesn't exist. And friends, we live among so many who are practical atheists, giving lip service to God, and yet living as though there is no God. God does not see me. Do what I want. And around us is this temptation, this calling. Live as a practical atheist. You can go to church on Sunday. You can take the Lord's Supper, but just live like the rest of us. There is no God. All of the design, all of the evident order in creation, ah, live for yourself. You be you. You do you. God doesn't see. No big deal. 
Remember Ecclesiastes ended a few weeks ago with a call to fear the Lord. This is the opposite. This is one who doesn't fear the Lord. Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is the battleground. Is God the important one? Or have we believed the lie that no, really I am the important one here? And we see as this psalm unfolds that practical atheism has a hundred bitter fruits. Why is this in the Bible? Because we need to understand the world as it is. And so we see what this life looks like. Verse 5, His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of His sight. As for all His foes, He puffs at them. He says in His heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. This one, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Friend, you see all of the evil flowing out of this idea, this core idea, this core theological construct that says there is no God. For out from this, all of these other evils are coming out. If you go to many American churches, you will not hear many sermons on texts like these. The American church, one of its realities is it frequently, sometimes almost exclusively goes to texts of triumph. Not, not texts like this. Texts that meet us in pain, that acknowledge suffering, acknowledge the reality of injustice, oppression, adversity. This spring, Pastor Lou and Elizabeth and I and several other folks from the city were on a tour of civil rights sites and we were uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. I shared this with some of you, but we were being told a little bit about the, the history of the city. We started a, a walk at the dock where slaves were unloaded in Montgomery. And then we were instructed to march arm in arm with someone of a different ethnicity. So Lou and I were, were marching arm in arm up the streets of Montgomery from these docks up to the center of downtown where the slave market was located and couldn't help but think about what would it be like to endure such suffering? What would it be like to be a believer in such a context? Utterly powerless, confronted only with injustice, what do you ask of God if your family is ripped apart through an auction? What do you ask in the face of such injustice when you have no power? You ask questions like this. Why, oh Lord, do you stand far away even as you see those who have sat in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, you see the wicked murder the innocent. 
even this week, in Cameroon, which we pray for often, a Bible translator was attacked and killed. Been translating the Bible for years. His wife had her, her arm cut off. And we cry out, why? Why does this keep happening? Why, God, where are you? Verse 7, his mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. This verse, Psalm 10, verse 7, is cited in Romans 3. You may remember that in Romans 3, God is describing the state of all men, that all men have sinned, all men are wicked. And this reminds us that as he describes the wicked here, he is reminding each one of us that we, apart from Christ, are the wicked. We, apart from Christ, have sinned. We, apart from Christ, fall short of the glory of God. And if we are not this now, it is the mercy of God that he has allowed us to see our own wickedness, our own need of God, and put our trust in Christ. But this one here, he continues, verse 9, he lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into a net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. And one more time, he declares his practical atheism. In verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And so we must ask, God, why do you let the wicked prosper? This is a question every believer comes to. There is much in this world that is hard to understand. Much that that we would say, if, if I were God, I, I wouldn't do it this way. I wouldn't let this be. I would do it differently. Well, Psalm 37 gives us a little bit different angle on this. Zooms back a little bit, zooms out, and it says this, the wicked plot against the righteous. They gnash their teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bow, bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows shall be broken. He holds them in derision. He laughs at them, even as Psalm 2 said, God will do justice. All will be met appropriately. But now in the moment, it doesn't always appear so. Remember in the New Testament, Herod, King Herod was, was this guy. He was all about himself and he seemed to prosper. And then in one day, he was struck down and everything was gone. So friend, if you are here today, and you have not been a student of this book, if you have not believed the Bible, question for you is, what is your explanation for the evil of the world? Is it all randomness? Or all the order and all the systems in this world coming from chaos? For to reject the Bible necessitates embracing a better system of answers not simply to turn your thoughts away, 
Maybe consider at lunch today, what would your neighbor say who is not a Bible reader about what the source of great evil in the world is? For we have seen the Bible's answer, its source. But what would your neighbor say about the source of this evil that exists around us? So first we have this question, and next we have this call. After the psalmist laments this evil that is done around him, now he turns and he calls to God in verse 12 through 15. And he says, Arise, O Yahweh. In the midst of all this affliction, he says, Arise, O Yahweh. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Again, he's asked the question, God, why are you so far off? And now he calls God and says, God, arise. It's time. Lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. He asks in verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? He is questioning Why do they renounce God? This idea of renouncing God is the same idea of what Job's wife invited Job to do. Remember, Job endured such shocking, such sudden suffering. She says, Job, all this this following God stuff, it's a big waste of time. Obviously, God's not for you. Just curse God and die. Renounce God was the invitation she gave her husband. It's the same idea here. And this is Satan's invitation to each one of us. This whole following Jesus thing, it's not really paying off. It's way too hard. You're missing out. Life would be so much better. The psalmist is asking, why does the wicked renounce God? Say in his heart, you will not call to account. And then he speaks to God very personally. See the word you repeated again and again and again in verse 14. What's true, he says, but you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So with the psalmist, we come to God. We join saying, yes, you, that's who you are, God. That's why we sing. We say, God, you are this one. You do take note. You do see. You see me. You see me in my pain. You see me in my struggle. You see me in my sorrow. Friend, do you remember in Genesis 16, the first appearance of of God in the form of the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord appears to the most unlikely candidate. For Genesis 16, we, we meet a young girl. She has been the mistress, the servant of Abraham, but she has been cast out. And now she is a single mother. She's a foreigner. She's homeless. She has nowhere to go. And in that moment, God appears to her, this most unlikely of people. 
And tenderly, God speaks to her, draws near to her. Do you know what she says? It says in Genesis 16, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her and said, you are a God of seeing. Think about what that means. Think about how she describes God. She said, you are a God of seeing. You see me. You see me. I feel like no one in the world sees me. You see me. And friend, you might feel like no one in the world sees you today. No one in the world knows what it's like. And this young woman would say to you, he is a God of seeing. She continued, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And as he looked after this cast out young lady, so he looks after you. You do see, says verse 14. You will take it into your hands. You do help the helpless as they commit themselves to you. One more verse in this section, verse 15. The psalmist, seeing all this wickedness, says, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none question for you. Should you make this your devotional verse tomorrow at work, at your work Bible study? You're there at Wells Fargo. You're there with the other teachers and you read, break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. What do we do with this? Should we just skip over this? Just put this aside? Oh, man, that's, that's embarrassing that that's in the Bible. No, no. He sees, and he hears, and he knows. We hate wickedness. We want it to be done. We pray that it would end. We trust in a God who will end it. And yet, Brother Don Winnis in prayer meeting this morning reminded us of something so important. He reminded us that the Bible tells us that our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's that person at work that's so hard on us, that relative that is just so unrelenting, they're not our enemy. They're not. All of us were slaves of Satan, according to Ephesians 2, Ephesians 6, and we were rescued. And now those ones who are still ignorant to God, still renouncing God, they're not the enemy, though they do wickedness. And we pray, let wickedness be done, and we pray, God, have mercy on our enemies. Both of these things as we look through the cross back to read this text. First, we had a question, then a call, call to a God who sees us. And finally, a word of confidence. A little more perspective here. For now, the psalmist zooms back even farther and speaks of Yahweh. And he says this in his confidence in verse 16. Yahweh, we just sang this so good. Yahweh is king 
forever and ever. Amen? Let me say that again. Yahweh is king forever and ever. Amen? This is a verse to say to your soul, especially in the next 12 months leading up to an election. Our, our, our country's going to go crazy. We all know this, right? It's absolutely going to go bonkers. And we must set our hearts on the reality that Yahweh is the king forever and ever. And the nations will perish from his land. Those that have power right now won't have power forever. What is now will not be forever. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 start this book with some themes. And Psalm 2, which we started the service with, said the nations, that, that is the mass of humanity, have their own agenda. And their own agenda is to reject Christ. They rule in their own way. They rule for their own glory, their, their own selves. And yet the promise here is that the Lord will have ultimate permanent rule. This is how Revelation wraps up history. In Re Revelation 11, one of my favorite texts in the Bible, it says this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Anybody know the next phrase? You've sung it before. And he shall reign forever and ever. Oh my, this is our confidence, loved ones. This is the God of the Bible. He will reign forever and ever, and this is what we must fix our hearts on in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering. When you hear Handel's Messiah and it sings this, and so many people sing it, I have no idea what they're singing. You'll know that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ shall reign forever and ever. No end, no elections, no recall, forever. Two more verses, O oh Lord, you who reign forever and ever, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Hear the confidence growing now after all this affliction. You hear the desire, the desire of the afflicted. We don't dismiss our affliction. We don't make, call trifling our affliction. Our affliction is real. The affliction of your loved ones is real. The pain, the tears, they are real. And yet our God is a God who hears the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Friend, likely this psalm is not for today. This psalm is for someday in the future. Don't forget this psalm. Hide it in your heart. Remember these promises. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. Friends, one of the reasons we gather together as a church, an ecclesia, a gathering, after all, we could just listen to a podcast and sing worship music from our 
own little device, right? But, but why do we gather as a church? We gather because we were built to need relationship and we need one another. And sometimes when we're weak, we need someone else to come and remind us that Psalm 10 verse 17 is true. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear. In a few minutes, we're going to gather to take the Lord's Supper. And even there, as we're eating it together and praying together, pray knowing that those people in your huddle, they're in a battle to believe that God is, that God sees, and that God knows, and that God loves. Verse 18, O Lord, you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man, that is the wicked man, the one who has said there's no God, God doesn't see, God doesn't remember, God does, I'm going to do my own thing, I'm going to harm, I'm going to injure, I'm going to do what I want, so that the man, this man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. What do we see in Psalm 10? We see that even as we experience pain, God sees. Even as we look and look at the affliction around us, we know that God knows. He hears the desire of the afflicted. He will strengthen our hearts. He will incline His ear. There is waiting. That kingdom coming is not come fully yet. There is groaning. There is pain. There are tears. It was a month ago when some of us were singing with the cowcoats. There is strength within the sorrow. There is beauty in our tears. And you meet us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. You are working in our waiting. You are sanctifying us when beyond our understanding you're teaching us to trust. Your plans are still to prosper. You've not forgotten us. You're with us in the fire and the flood. You are faithful forever, perfect in love. You are sovereign over us not a bumper sticker, not a cliche, the absolute rock underneath our feet when it feels like the flood will bowl us over. For in this broken world, there is no greater hope than what God offers us at the cross. What is God's answer to corruption and brokenness and suffering? The world has answers, education, Republican or Democratic policies, more money. But even as Christ agonized on the cross, displaying God's answer, it was not a surprise to him, even as he asked those questions, because he had predicted it. He did so finally when he gave his disciples a meal that explained it all. Explained 
What is our hope in our pain, in our bodily decline, in death? And he was explaining to them at that meal that the cross would stand as God's great answer, his great declaration of love to his people. It would declare that death is defeated and sin loses. It would declare that the resurrection is real and life with God is ultimate and hope is certain and sure in and beyond our present trouble and pain and beyond even our death. In our pain, we look to the cross, we take this meal, and we remember what the Puritan John Flavel said. The providence of God is like Hebrew words, can be read only backwards, which means we can't make sense of the providence of God always in the moment. It's over years and decades that we begin to see the unfolding plan of God in all of its detail and nuance. Doesn't all add up in the moment. And yet, the Lord Jesus Christ gave us this meal to remember month after month that there is no meal like this one. It's a meal that doesn't hide from reality. It's a meal that doesn't say grin and bear it. It's a meal that reminds us that our God knows that we feel reality deeply. And we know that knowing ourselves to be sinners, we could not earn our way to God. We could not earn His favor with our good deeds. We were the wicked. We were the practical atheist. And for all those who have put their trust in Christ, it's because of His mercy revealing our wickedness to us and the great love that Christ demonstrated to rescue us. Friend, if you are here today and you have never put your trust in Christ to be your Savior, to be your sin-bearer, I invite you to call out to Him today. I want to close with one application, and then we will go to the table. This is from an author I find so profitable. An author who battled cancer and lost and yet has left behind so much wisdom. His name is David Paulison. He's talking about one particular form of affliction called fatigue that some of you know. Here's what he says. He says, God will use your fatigue. And if you don't struggle with fatigue, many of you don't, think of your own trouble. But he says, God will use your fatigue as the door into a deeper knowledge of his love. As you read the Psalms, you see that those who know God well know themselves to be afflicted, weak, oppressed, broken, humble, and needy. Psalm 31, it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And this was on Jesus' lips as he hung on the cross. Powerless and in great pain, he became this for us. Hebrews 4, 15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are yet without sin. Jesus lived in weakness. 
He knows what it is like to depend on the mercies of God for every breath. Jesus' experience of weakness is the door to the one, to one of the most marvelous promises of God, which comes in the next verse, Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What is fatigue? Or what is another suffering? It's a very specific time of need. You are struggling. Life is hard. You are living through a dark time. You're living in a body that doesn't work. You need. Your Lord sympathizes with your need. He promises grace and mercy, immediate help in the context of your 